Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Ladies and gentlemen, listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. I should say aloha, dear listeners, because I am talking to you from Hawaii. I got uh, basically a day and a half left here. Um... And just a little full disclosure, some of you probably know this from Twitter, but uh, we had a pretty, uh, not even pretty, we had a totally tragic um, change of plans on basically just before Christmas, we hours of Christmas Eve, basically, uh, we got the news that my brother's wife or my brother's widow, because my brother passed away uh, nine years ago. Um, my brother's widow, Chantal, uh, passed away. And so it fell to me for all sorts of obvious and maybe some non-obvious reasons that I had to deal with the funeral arrangements and all the rest. And so we postponed going, coming out here to be with uh, our relatives out here. My wife's family has a communal house out here on the big island and so we put that off and we dealt with all that and i can talk or not talk about all those details down the road but just to say that we weren't planning on doing um i was planning on doing podcasts in the new year from home in dc and we had to change the schedule a bit and so rather than trying to record a new one from here um we had one in reserve um, of sorts. I had a conversation with Charles Murray back in November, um, and we decided that we would run it. Um, we sort of had it sort of, it was our break glass in case of emergency podcast. Um, and so that's what we're going to be playing today. And, um, I should tell you a little bit since, uh, it was recorded actually for the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute's summer honors program. Um, uh, I should tell you a little bit about them since they gave us permission to to run it on the podcast. The Summer's Honors Program is an Im- immersive learning experience in which exceptional undergraduates of all political stripes spend a week studying policy with an AEI scholar, participate in wide-ranging conversations with other students from various backgrounds, and learn about policy careers in Washington, D.C. This year's Summer Honors Program will take place Throughout June and early July, the program offers 16 courses, each lasting a week, covering topics like constitutional law, U.S.-China relations, contemporary economic debates, and more. Uh, Actually, Charles Murray will be teaching a course entitled Building Blocks of Human Flourishing from June 28 to July 2. Outside of the seminars, students participate in briefings with speakers from AEI, 
other think tank scholars, leading newspaper writers and commentators, and elected officials. Oh, and did I mention that the thing is fully funded? It's fully funded. AI covers your travel costs and provides lodging and meals and a stipend. So if you're an undergraduate who's eager to study policy with renowned experts or even just see me reeking of cigar smoke on the roof and to engage in substantive conversations with other students or if you know a college student who fits the bill, you should, jo- you should check it out and apply. And you can go on the AEI website, just Google AEI Summer Honors Program or look in the show notes of today's remnant. You can also nominate a student for this exciting opportunity. Um, don't delay. The final deadline for applications is March 1. Okay, so I've done my duty here. I'm grateful to the guys at uh, the Summer Honors Program and all academic programs at AI, which are great. And here comes the conversation with Charles. And I will uh, talk to you next time from Washington, unless you're a Dispatch Podcast listener, in which case I will be getting up at five in the morning on Wednesday uh, to record it because Hawaii is five hours behind the East Coast. And I know I have nothing but sympathy and um, empathy from listeners out there on the East Coast who feel sorry for me that I have to get up really early in the morning in Hawaii. So uh, that's it. And thanks for tuning in. And I look forward to more exciting stuff in the new year. Here's our conversation. Hi, Charles. Hi, Madonna. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I I resent it's just one more of the uh, the indignities this pandemic has inflicted is that we're going to have this conversation without drinks. <laughs> I um, know. When I saw you lift your glass, I was looking at the color, but uh, <laughs> this is pure Coca-Cola. Yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to martinis or scotch at two in the afternoon, but it's probably a bad habit. Um, so uh, it's a little bit of a weird conversation to be talking about libertarianism and the election and all of that, but I've had weirder. Um, just sort of for level setting, um, we're going to have a conversation, but I figure I'd start off by asking you, um, particularly in your, with your libertarian hat on, but also just in general, uh, what's your big takeaway from the election? Well, in purely practical terms, it was an out- ideal outcome for me. Uh, I finally decided I cannot tolerate Trump, uh, even though a lot of the things that happened in his watch were fine with me. I, I just could not vote for the man, and I thought it was important that he be out. I also really, really didn't want to have uh, both houses of Congress and the presidency uh, run by the Democrats because the Democrats have become a deeply radical party over the course of the last couple of years. And the amount of damage they could do is enormous. So assuming that Georgia uh, does not completely mess things up and, and the uh, Republicans still control the Senate, practical standpoint, I'm, I'm quite happy. We'll have dead gridlock. There's a lot to be said for gridlock. In terms of the topic, libertarianism after the election, I hate sort of have the same attitude you do. It's kind of weird because (laughs) libertarianism is pretty much dead as a dodo uh, for the foreseeable future. And we can talk more about why that is. But I know that I feel, and, and I think you share a lot of it, just this sense that for years to come, probably, people like you and I are going to be trying to keep alive, um, the ideals of classical liberalism and uh, 
the liberalism, the kind of liberalism that created the Constitution of the United States, because it's not going to be a major political force for a long time. Yeah, I think for the benefit of college students, we should just be clear. If Charles and I start talking about liberalism, odds are that we're talking about that kind of liberalism, this idea of free markets, free societies, pluralism, limited government. Um, and if we're going to talk about, you know, those damn liberals, we'll refer to them as progressives, just for clarity's sake. Um, you know, could I just jump in there? I think we ought to encourage that distinction. I agree. Liberal and progressive, because liberals still do believe. I mean, the traditional liberals still do believe in the American creed that you just described of in the United States, you can go as far as hard work and talent will take you. We judge people as individuals, all that. They believe that. It's the progressives who are playing identity politics and want us not only to judge people as groups, but to judge certain groups as being despicable. And uh, we can use the power of the state to favor the good guys against the bad guys. Yeah, for, for students who are interested in this stuff, the, the way this actually happened was um, the left in America used to call themselves progressives for the most part. Um, and um, there were people in both parties who called themselves liberals, even people like Joseph McCarthy as early as the 1950s and, Howard, and, and, and Robert Taft were using liberal in a positive sense because they considered themselves, I mean, McCarthy was lying, but uh, <laughs> they considered themselves to be liberals. And it wasn't considered an ideological thing on the spectrum like that. What really started to change it was FDR, the progressives of the Woodrow Wilson era, um, so ruined the label progressive, they had to pick up a new label. And FDR started calling himself a liberal instead of a progressive. And meanwhile, the communists took over the progressive label um, under the Henry Wallace Populist Party, People's Party, and they called themselves progressives. And when libertarianism became a thing, the word liberal was not available to them. And so they called themselves libertarians, which was a term that even Friedrich Hayek considered ridiculous. He, did, he thought it was just, it clanged off the ear. So in a properly ordered society, maybe no one would have full claim to the word liberal, but it would be something that people in all parties believed in, in terms of these basic American precepts. But the left would be called progressives, conservatives could be called conservatives, and libertarians could get the liberal word back a little bit, which would be good for everybody. Um, uh, although I will throw in here that I have decided I'm a Madisonian, and uh, I, the word has not caught on. But that's basically the kind of, of, of liberalism I believe in. Uh, it, does, it has a place for government, but it also is based on a very realistic view of human nature, which says that this is, as Jonah Goldberg has pointed out very eloquently in some of his writings, this thing we call a free society is a very artificial creation. It, human societies don't naturally work out this way. And the Constitution, uh, in my view, was just brilliant in its understanding of how you have to build walls of protection around freedom or else it's going to go away. Yeah, no, I, I'm, it's funny you say that. I just I gave a talk at Old Parkland where I was waxing Madisonian just the other day. And it's funny, the, the thing that I have a greater appreciation, particularly post this election, is how the Madisonian structure, which isn't just the Constitution, it's also this broader understanding of the role of parties and also this role of state governments, right? I mean, we don't just divide up the federal government into 
executive, legislative, and judicial. We divide up every state government that way. And every state divides up pretty much its county governments that way. And this was part of Madison's grand architecture. And the idea was to create a system with just a thousand little safeguards that prevented the tyrannies, even local tyrannies of majorities or minorities from uh, taking over the system. It's a whole bunch of uh, uh, circuit breakers throughout the system that forces interests to form coalitions that shave off their extremes in the process of building a coalition. That's how parties are supposed to operate. And the reason why I had this epiphany about Madisonianism was, I don't know if you caught this, Charles, because you don't have to be as much of a pundit as I do. Um, but 10 days ago, Joe Manchin, in an interview with Brett Baer, basically said, the Green New Deal's off. Court packing is off. The filibuster is off. I'm Even if the Democrats take Georgia, they're going to need a majority of Democrats to um, do what they want. And I will not vote for that stuff. I will not. He didn't say he wouldn't vote for the Green New Deal. He said he wouldn't vote for getting rid of the filibuster. And if you don't get rid of the filibuster, you can't get the Green New Deal. And so what was really interesting to me about that is the way the way the system was set up, that when you have two polarized extremes, it actually empowers the center because the center then becomes the tiebreaker in these sorts of things. And so one man could single-handedly frustrate the ambitions of the entire progressive left to sort of steamroll over the system. And that that is a feature, not a bug of the system. It, it, it encourages the not only voters, but 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 players in the system to um, maximize their leverage. And when you do that, you create a system where it's very difficult for one side to have permanent victories, either because the Bill of Rights prevents certain things from happening, the Supreme Court can overrule things, presidents can veto things, and that forces the mechanisms of negotiation and compromise, which make the system sort of, I'm not a big fan of Nassim Taleb, but Madison set up a very anti-fragile system mm -hmm. that creates its own feedback loops to protect itself. And, you know, if we're thinking about what happens to libertarians as opposed to libertarianism, I would like to know how many people who call themselves lowercase l uh, libertarians are, are themselves prepared to act as centrists under the, 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 the today's circumstances. Right. I am prepared to join a coalition of the center right and the center left uh, and try to do whatever I can to try to, to revitalize this moderate middle that respects, respects free discourse and all the things that we just used to take for granted. I, I'm, you know, you, you take a look at libertarians, and one thing that you could generally say about them is they were principled. Uh, some of them had really way out principles, but, but, but they were people who really believed in a variety of things. We both have been appalled over the last four or five years by the number of people who called themselves conservatives, who turned out not to be conservative at all uh, when there was a competing agenda that they liked. And they went over to Trumpism without, apparently, who cares if we have gigantic deficits? Who cares if we do this, that, or the other thing? Have libertarians been doing that? <clears throat> have they been sort of throwing away their principles? 
Or are they too like me saying, okay, first we have to heal this terrible wound that the system has uh, sustained. And maybe after that, we can get back to talking about, about uh, more principled forms of freedom. Yeah. I mean, let me, let me throw something by you. So in my years in Washington, I've had lots of fun debates with libertarians, even though I've become much more libertarian over the last 20 years. Um, but one of the points I'll often make is that, you know, there are precious few people who call themselves libertarian, but at least until recently, there were tens of millions of people who are essentially libertarians. They just called themselves conservatives. And so, again, until the Trump era came along, if you were going to talk about a conservative economist, you were talking about a libertarian economist. You were talking about Milton Friedman or Tom Sowell or, or whoever. You know, you were talking about the Austrian school. And, um, and that's because conservatism, because of, you know, one of the unique things about conservatism in America, unlike almost any other country, is that what it's trying to conserve is a liberal revolution. And so, you know, this is a point Samuel, Samuel Huntington used to make that, you know, a conservative in Portugal or a conservative in Spain, a conservative in France, they want to conserve blood and soil conservatism. They want to conserve rule of altar and throne, that kind of thing. And in America, we want to conserve the principles of the founding, which is why Hayek said that basically only in America could you call yourself a conservative and still be on the side of liberty. And, um, and I think, though, that that's also probably true of a good number of people who call themselves liberals or progressives, right? That, that when push comes to shove, um, they think that overweening government intrusions into their lives are infuriating, too. They might have different intrusions that they don't like, but there is actually a pretty broad, because it's part of our culture, to be sort of leave me alone, let me do my thing. Um, and I think that's where the, the coalition that you want to build would be most fruitful is to say, Hey, look, guys, there are people on your side who want to get rid of free speech. And there are people on that side who want to get rid of free speech. There are people on that side who want to like, uh, meddle with the economy in ways that are entirely ideological and probably bound to fail. And there are people on that side who want to do it. So it's time for, in a Madisonian sense, to create, to create a faction of what people would call the middle um, to be a countervailing force on all of that. I mean, culturally, we're much more libertarian than I think people can appreciate. I would imagine that among the students who are joining this webinar, given its title, are a bunch who, who do consider themselves to be libertarians. And so I want to take a, this opportunity to encourage you to, to steep yourself in the traditions that Jonah was just talking about. Because if you stop using the word libertarian and instead say, well, what I believe in is a limited government, uh, the ability of people to live their lives as they see fit, as long as they give the same freedom to everybody else, that kind of stuff. If that's what that's if that's the core of your libertarianism, realize that this doesn't come out of an icy, individualistic, uh, every man for himself uh, culture. It comes out of the Scottish Enlightenment in the 18th right. century. It comes out of theory of moral sentiments uh, by uh, Adam Smith, along with Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. If you haven't read those, you ought to do it, because there is this intimate link between the tradition that resulted in the Constitution 
and a strong sense of obligation to your fellow citizens, not obligations that are imposed on you and they can throw you in jail if you don't do them, but your obligations to as a human being and a community of other human beings. It's a it's a much richer uh, philosophy than a lot of libertarians in the 1960s and 1970s like to admit. But that is where the American tradition came from. And it's that kind of resuscitation that is necessary because that whole sense of the reason you do the right thing is because it's the right thing to do. And you gain, and this is Adam Smith's insight, human beings want the approbation of their fellow human beings. And if you're living in a community where your fellow human beings are judging you on the basis of your character and of your behavior toward others, if that's the case, you're going to behave in ways that gain their approval. And if I had to say among the many reasons that I thought Trump was awful for the country, uh, it is the issue of character. And it was... Jonah Goldberg, who, when we were walking out of a reception in New York City and just after the election in 2016, it was Jonah who thundered, character is destiny, which he didn't make up, actually. But, uh, but it, was, it, was exactly the right, it was exactly the right thing to say, because it's not only destiny in terms of how you turn out as a human being, it's also destiny for a country. And the idea that the United States can continue to be the United States that made it exceptional without character being a leading conservative slash libertarian principle is ridiculous. Can't happen. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I'm entirely with you. I mean, I I think, and this is a point people like Frank Meyer, who the students probably don't, most of them don't know who he is. This was one of his core arguments about fusionism, which was this idea of marrying conservatism and libertarianism together was that fusionism is an outgrowth of American historical tradition that goes all the way back in the West. And it's modified by England and comes to America. And it is less about some cold ideological thing that you get from the fountainhead or out Atlas Shrugged, and more about deeply embedded understandings of the American character, of good character. Um, you know, the, the, one of the things I often try to tell, explain to students is, the founding fathers did not initially want to break from England. The reason why they broke from England is they felt, and they're, they're open about this in their speeches and at the time as they were building up to the, the big step of declaring independence and revolution, was they felt that their natural rights as Englishmen were being denied. And, um, and that speaks to this longer, older tradition that comes out of England, gets more refined in America, the point where people like Alexis de Tocqueville would say, the American is just the Englishman left alone. And it also gets to, I mean, if, if we're going to try to indoctrinate people a little bit here, I mean, I think one way to think about it, listening to you talk is define in your own head, what makes someone a person of good character. And that, and I don't mean this in a Republican versus Democratic sense, that person is probably pretty conservative in a sort of just a moral sense. They don't lie. They don't uh, borrow money without intent of paying it back. 
They don't always shift blame for their own mistakes onto other people. Um, and you can go down a very long list about what you think good character means, including things like compassion and, and, and all the rest. And um, that is the sort of the bedrock understanding of what it means to be sort of a, a, a small C conservative in a lot of ways. And it also describes the kind of citizenry that the founding fathers thought was essential to make this thing work in the first place. Let, let me pull in something else they believe, because this is a question for the 21st century that's going to become more and more relevant. Uh, can you have the kind of system we're talking about, a society work, if it is also uh, not a religious society? Mm-hmm. Now, the founders were putatively Christians, most of them, almost all of them, but they certainly weren't doctrinaire. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, was a, pretty openly a deist. Uh, right. Benjamin Franklin did not accept the divinity of Christ. Uh, you go down the list. But they, they all said in their writings very explicitly, this constitution will only work for religious people. And the reason they said that was because they saw religion with, with its moral commandments, that it's not just a value judgment that you don't do certain things. It's, it's God's what wants you to behave in those ways, and that's what defines being a good human being. And so here we have a, a, a variety of ways in which we need to resuscitate the American society, both Jonah and I think, you know, love. Can we do it if we are a secular society? And I pose that as a question because the humanists will make very strong arguments saying, no, we have advanced beyond the requirement for formal religion. And uh, I guess I have my doubts. I, I guess that I'm, I'm, uh, I think there's a half-life to the survival of a variety of moral principles in the absence of religion. But uh, we're going to be the canary in the coal mine on that because guess what, folks? There has never in the history of the world uh, been societies as secular as Europe's now and as the United States is heading toward. That could be a whole new dimension in which we have problems that are never going to get solved. And I guess I will libel the left by saying that they are a lot more secular than the right. And uh, to tell you the truth, I think that a lot that's gone on in the left shows how easy it is for certain principles just to get thrown out the window when they become inconvenient for the ideology. The idea a few, 10 years ago, the idea that it was okay to ruin a person's career uh, because of extremely minor deviations from the orthodoxy would be something that happens in the Red Guards in China. It's something that happens under totalitarian regimes. The idea that this is okay, it's a good thing to do, is really scary. Well, let me let me throw that back at you then, because I mean I, I don't disagree with any of that profoundly. Um, and I think one of the things that people who make the case that you don't need religion um, to have a a functioning society like ours, what they always I'm I'm willing to entertain that notion. I'm not particularly religious. You're not particularly religious, but what that what that then requires is to put even more emphasis on 
good character and decent values precisely because you are not using religion as this backstop for that stuff. I mean, one of the great things about, you know, monotheism historically or Judeo-Christian notions of the God, of God is that the whole idea of being God-fearing is a great way of um, keeping you on the straight and narrow, right? I mean, they like, you know, the sort of hallmark card thing is good character is what you do when nobody's watching. Well, if you believe that God is always watching you, you know, it'll ping your conscience a little bit before you steal something that you could get away with stealing because no one's watching. Yeah. And so a, a non-religious society actually has to spend more time and effort teaching good character precisely because religion isn't doing that work for them anymore. But so, and I don't, this is a very deep in the weeds thing and probably better done over scotch, but um, I, I'm a fan of the, the philosopher Eric Vogelin, uh, Vogelin, who, um, who is one of the leaders of this idea that when sort of the, the Chestertonian point where you take God out of the equation, it's not like we stop uh, worshiping things. We just start worship, wor worshiping something other than a divine being. And, um, and I would argue that the, the loss of formal organized traditional religion um, has turned all sorts of secular things into religion substitutes. You know, wokeism is very much like an American religious revival. It just doesn't have a formal theology to it. And the hunt for heretics that you're describing is very much a religious part of the brain, right? I mean, the, that idea of uncleanliness or violation of the sacred is something that every brain has in every society, everywhere around the world. And just getting rid of formal religion doesn't erase that part of your brain. That part of your brain just applies it to something else. And yeah. what do you think of all that? Yeah, the, that part of the brain also is a very dangerous part of the brain because once you, you are a true believer, fanaticism is okay. Right. If, <clears throat> and, and that a lot of the green movement, uh, they treat the earth, Mother Earth is treated as, as God. Uh, and, and even human beings maybe shouldn't even be around because the earth shouldn't be meddled with in any way. And that has lent itself certainly to fanaticism. The kinds of things you just talked about are fanaticism. And one of the accomplishments of the United States at the beginning was not to be down on religion, but to be saying, you are free to worship as you please, and you do not have the right to keep somebody else from doing that. It's another example of a point that both of us were making earlier. A free society is incredibly artificial, delicate, fragile structure. And it just doesn't coast along on its own. It constantly has to be rebuilt. And, and uh, instead, at this point, we are taking all the things that Jonah just said we need to do more, more of, which is, you know, teach character, which used to be a function of the university. Right. And it's, it's not only not a function of the university, uh, non-judgmentalism. It's another form of the new religion. Right. And, and so you are being taught, no, you must not make the kinds of discriminating judgments that are necessary if you're going to talk about this is good behavior, this is bad behavior, or to use a much better and more powerful word, this is virtuous 
this other thing is not virtuous. Universities completely abdicated that kind of duty. Uh, parents uh, uh, often feel uncomfortable, I think, these days, particularly, I'm going to go back to, to pounding on uh, the seculars again. Uh, I think that they don't do a good enough job of saying, gee, if we aren't going to have our children going to church every Sunday, we better devote extra effort to instilling good character in them. That's not, that's not the way that they've been, they've been working. I guess what Jonah and I are doing at this point is each trotting out <laughs> all the reasons why we drink heavily at times. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that. that these days there's a lot to be depressed about. And, and it's very hard to see where the centers of regeneration are going to come from. I've been on a lot of panels, some of them with you, some of them with other people um, in Washington over the last 20 plus years doing this libertarianism versus conservatism thing. And um, there's always some earnest, precocious intern or young policy gnome from somewhere who will interrupt the conversation with a question and he'll say, or she'll say, um, wouldn't all of these disagreements between you guys be settled if we just back went back to the Madisonian framework of sending as much power down the most local level possible and let different people live the way they want to live in different communities, including the right to live in a conservative community, right? Um, or a liberal community or a progressive community or whatever, but let, let people live in, I mean, this, this, this is really the the key compromise that allowed libertarians and conservatives to play well with each other is, is if you send power down the most lo local level possible, you don't have a one size fits all government. Right. And I think the most important right in our constitutional order is not explicitly it's, it's implied in the first amendment, but it's not explicitly said, and that's the right to be wrong. Um, you know, the, 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 the first amendment protections about religion weren't to keep us from being religious. It was to keep one religion from steamrolling a bunch of minority religions. And um, if wokeism or progressivism is a new religion, okay, you can't stop that really. Um, but you can contain it. Let people live the way they want to live in their communities, but don't those communities have no right to tell people in other communities how to live. And so I guess the question is, how, as a libertarian or as a policy wonk or an elder statesman, because you're all of those things, how do you actually concretely get Washington to relinquish a little of its power and send it back to where people actually are aware of the facts on the ground, aware of the problems at the local level, and deal with it um, on a person-to-person -person basis, which is where the real progress in life gets done? I mean, as long as we turn the state into this driving force of history that defines us, which is why I don't like nationalism or socialism. We're going to have these arguments where it's one size fits all for everybody. What you want is you want to live in a country that's much more interesting to drive across. Yep. And they run into different people in different places. How do you get there? Ah, I thought that when the Tea Party movement started way back in 2008, I guess it was, I was heartened. Me too. Because you had a group that seemed to be getting together and saying, let's put aside our differences as social conservatives and as libertarians and so forth, and let's just focus on letting people live their lives as they see fit in this Madisonian framework that you just described. 
And for a few years there, I said, there is more energy out there for this than I imagined. Maybe this can take off. What we have watched for the last five or six years is the complete collapse of that kind of energy and that kind of visible belief. And instead, the, the Tea Party itself sort of converted into a Trumpian, uh, insofar as it remained as an institution, Trumpian kind of thing. And so the answer to your question is, that's why the remnant is the right name for your podcast. Uh, because we are the remnant that uh, comes from, what's his name, who, who said you've got to keep the flame of these ideas alive because we aren't going to get any help. I just want to throw in something that, because it's always interesting to see how you missed something, you in this case, meaning me, uh, because I used to advocate this too, uh, that not only devolve power down, but look, if people want to associate with people who share their values, that's the most normal thing in the world. It's healthy. I was, I didn't see any downsides to it at all back 15 years ago. Now, as I look at, uh, Manhattan below 96th Street, as I look at Atherton, California and Palo Alto and these other enclaves of the, the new elite and see the degree to which they have become people living together by voluntary choice who share the same values. Yeah, they're doing that all right. And they are so walled off from ordinary America uh, that they haven't the least idea what's going on. These are things I talked a lot about in the book called uh, Coming Apart. But I hadn't realized the extent to which people choosing the communities they wanted to live in would also first um, not have anybody else in there. And second, the degree to which they would cluster together. And third, the extent to which that this would be multi-generational thing where people grew up in. Uh, I just did a little work the other day, which I hadn't done before, and I'll just bring it in kind of. You want to know how isolated this new group is? You can rank all the zip codes in the country on their socioeconomic status using census data on income and education. And so the 99th percentile is really high, okay? Top, top percentile. You can get uh, in a car in downtown Washington, D.C. and drive for 26 miles through about seven or eight or nine different zip codes, never leaving the 99th percentile. And not only that, on either side of you to the north and south are another couple of belts of them. You have, you have hundreds of thousands of people who have enormous control over this country who are living in this island. Jonah Goldberg is a resident there, a dissident resident there. Um, and, and the degree to which they don't get it they don't drive across the country and stay in days inns and uh, eat at truck stops and uh, their kids don't get summer jobs out uh, on dude ranches and things. That's very scary. So, so the, I guess what I'm saying is we have in one way seen the downside of people being able to opt out of American life at the ordinary level. And the people who run the country have it to a large degree opted out of life in ordinary America. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with that as a descriptive thing. Here, here's where I'll push back a little bit on that. My, my favorite passage in Wealth of Nations is when he, when Adam Smith talks about how um, 
and I'm going to butcher the quote, but you'll you'll recognize it. Um, Rarely will two men of the same occupation meet in a tavern or a hotel lobby where the conversation won't rapidly turn to a conspiracy against the public good. You quoted very closely. Yeah. Yeah. And the left will often cite this as proof that business is inherently monopolistic and it's bad and blah, 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 blah. And they always leave out the second part of the quote, which says, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, there's nothing wrong with that because that's human nature and you can't avoid it. Right. I mean, if you own, if you're one of the only two paint stores in a town, odds are you're going to talk to the other owner of the paint store. And rather than get into a price war trying to drive each other out of business, you're going to come to a gentleman's agreement about how much you're going to charge for things, guaranteeing you both profits. And that's what Smith is basically talking about. And Smith says, you can't really stop that. The only thing you can do is prevent the government from sanctioning it. We know from Joseph Schumpeter and others that you can't have a monopoly unless the government protects it. Because over time, monopolies invite their own destruction from from more innovative competitors. I think the problem, you're absolutely right about the self-sorting, and there are a lot of problems with it, and social media makes those problems much worse. But if the denizens of Manhattan or of Washington, D.C., and it's much harder with Washington, D.C., given that it's Washington, D.C., but if the denizens of, of, of Manhattan or Seattle or Silicon Valley were just simply comfortable living in their bubbles, I'd have no problem with it whatsoever. There's a lot I love about Manhattan, right? And, and I think conservatives make the fools of themselves constantly pretending as if like New York City is this utterly terrible place and the only real America is where you do a lot of pig farming. Nothing against pig farming, but like New York has a lot of things going for it. And the problem is, is that these people who self-sort use their disproportionate economic and political power and say, the entire country should live according to our values. And you can't stop people from self-sorting, not really, but you can create structures, which Madison tried to do, of keeping them from trying to say, all of flyover country needs to live the same way we do, which is idiotic and immoral. And I, I think there's hope and promise in that point that the point isn't to stop people from self-sorting. The point is to not let people who self-sort and and acquire massive amounts of power, then making the conclusion that the the little people need to live like us too. And that's where libertarianism needs to address itself. I'm good good with that. Oh, I see we have our uh, Q&A person here. Course. And I can definitely, as a person who tends to agree with you guys, you know, on a lot of issues, I can definitely agree as a college student that this is an age of depression. <laughs> this is an age, a depressing age that we live in. Um, I can go ahead and start with the first question. It comes from Taylor. Uh, Mr. Goldberg mentioned the likely death of the Green New Deal. Based on this analysis of this hypothetical new Congress, does he foresee a bipartisan replacement for responsible market-based climate change legislation? Uh, not anytime soon. Um, um, all my talk about how the Madisonian structure empowers compromise and, and, and stalemate rather than like riding roughshod over things. One of the most amazing, and this is just my pundit hat on, one of the most amazing things that come out of this election was how many seats the Republicans gained. And so now you're going to have, um, if all the final votes come in the way they look like they are, a split of 218 Democrats to 214 Republicans, which means that 
the squad, you know, AOC plus three, who I think get vastly too much attention normally. And they're basically used for fundraising purposes on the left and the right for a lot of stupid conversations. But there are four of them. And four people alone could dash any legislation that Nancy Pelosi wants to pass on to the Senate. And so I think there's a greater likelihood that very little gets done, which is, again, fine with me, um, so long as they can pass budgets and not freak out international credit markets and whatnot. Um, But I don't know that there's some grand compromise right around the corner for market-based solutions to environmental problems as much as I would like there to be. And I and I just have a quick question for both of you, just just out of personal interest. And you know, a couple people in the audience are from climate interested organizations on campus. Um, what do you guys think about carbon taxing? Is that like something a libertarian should consider, should not consider? Um, we can start with Dr. Murray and Mr. Goldberg can respond to. You know, uh, there are a couple of topics I have stayed away from <laughs> just because they're too damn complicated, and uh, climate change is one of them, and mm-hmm. and, and I have opinions, but my opinions are worth about as much as anybody else's. I'm going to turn it over to Joan Alvarez. Yeah, I'm going to dodge this a little bit too. Um, I I have opinions about climate change. I think it's real. I think Mm -hmm. there is a non-trivial black swan chance that it's as catastrophic as as people claim, but I think that's very unlikely. Um, I have a very difficult time taking people seriously on their own terms when they talk about how this is an existential threat an extinction level threat, as several Democratic candidates in the primary said. And then they said, but under no circumstances can we use nuclear power. Um, I mean, if it, an, an existential or, or an extinction level threat is a serious thing. And if you actually believe that, if you thought there was a meteor heading towards Earth and you were passionately opposed to nuclear weapons, um, so much so that you refused to use nuclear weapons against a meteor that was going to wipe out all life on the planet Earth, the term, and Charles can correct me on this, but the term in the social science literature for someone like you is a moron <laughs> and, um, and it should not be taken seriously. And, it, 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 and I'm not saying that people who say these things aren't serious people, but it exposes their sort of doctrinaire thinking about these things because they're not actually willing to think about real solutions to the problem they say is so severe. On carbon taxing, here at AEI, um, it is a hugely controversial thing, and our economists often a fight to the death over it. Some really are in favor of it. Some are really opposed to it. I, at the minimum, think it's a rational and serious thing to consider. And um, I know from people who work in the oil and gas industry, a lot of the big oil and gas players, they're planning, they, they already, for their own purposes, basically budget as if there is a carbon tax and they anticipate that one will be there for real. And so I, I, I am open to it. I just, it, 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 it really depends on the details. Thank you. And, and we have another question from Chad Stevens on the state of the Libertarian Party in America. Are there any lessons from how they performed in the election, how they perform in elections, um, and the ideas that they tend to push as a party, not necessarily as small well, L? A long time since they've had a, a spokesperson that commanded just a whole lot of interest because of his or her charisma uh, or ability to communicate it. There's, there's a wonderful message that would attract a lot of people. You've got to have a messenger for it. Uh, and the Libertarian Party consistently comes across as capital L, libertarianism, that is unrealistic and uh, 
and often comes across as as selfish. And uh, as long as that's the case, these they're never going to make inroads into uh, into the mainstream, as far as I can see. I, I I largely agree with that. I mean, I do think the best way to judge parties and politicians is not by what they say they're for, but what by what they prioritize. And for a long time, the Libertarian Party in the United States was basically about legalization of weed. And you can be in favor of that and all that, but that is not an issue that is going to draw in large numbers of suburban voters and, and the like. And the Libertarian Party has maintained this role as basically the protest vote party. And, um, um, and a lot of the most serious libertarians try to keep it at arm's length because if you've ever been to a Libertarian Party event in mood, it's not all that dissimilar from a Star Trek convention. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Um, okay. So our next question is from Sarah. It says, both David Brooks and David French have recently speculated that the United States could split. Given the siloing that Dr. Murray described, would you agree with them? I'm assuming this is for Mr. Goldberg. I, I, look, I mean, David's a colleague of mine and he's a friend of mine. Uh, both Davids are friends of mine. David French is a colleague of mine. Uh, I am skeptical that we would split. I mean, and, and David, neither of them are saying this is the most likely outcome. It's sort of like the climate change thing. If there's a 5% chance of it, that's a real problem to deal with. <laughs> um, but uh, I do think that the, the self-sorting stuff is a major problem. Um, and the way you would fix it, and this is what David French writes in his book, the way you fix it is doing what Charles and I say, which is send as much power down the most local level possible so people don't feel like cold, impersonal forces from far away that don't know them and, and, and aren't interested in what they think are running their lives. When you give people control over their own lives, you also create powers that be that have names and that locals know who to fire when they screw up. And, um, and I think that's the best solution for things is, is to figure out how you do that. But yeah, no, we got, we got very deep, serious cultural divides in this country. Um, and it's a real problem. I don't, I just don't see a lot, large numbers of people willing to pick up guns or anything. And I don't see a lot of politicians willing to pull California or Texas out of the union either. Yeah, I, I will simply say that I just never paid any attention to that kind of apocalyptic talk at all until the last year. And uh, over the course of 2020, <clears throat> watching what was happening with the Democratic primary campaigns, watching what happened uh, in the protests and riots over the summer, getting a sense of the depth of the, you know, the contempt first that the new upper class has for ordinary Americans and it's open contempt and also the extent to which uh, working class, middle class Americans, I'm thinking especially whites here, despise the new upper class. I said to myself, it's not inconceivable we're in the 1850s. And so that's, I guess, Joan and I have a very hard time disagreeing very much on anything. <laughs> that's where I, I'm, I'm with him on this. It's over the horizon. It's, but it's real in a way it has never been real in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. All right. Now we have one more question, and it's it's just a more general question about what you guys were describing as Madisonianism. Could you maybe describe what I mean? I know you mentioned federalism and its importance, but could you describe a little bit more about like what exactly 
like principles, like what are the tenets of a Madisonian worldview in terms of like political philosophy? You want to take that one, Charles? Sure. It's it's uh, it's not complicated. The the implementation of it is complicated. Uh, it is at the center of it is limiting the power of government, uh, but not getting rid of government. So you need to have government to provide for the general welfare, and it human beings will inevitably form faction and try to gain advantages for themselves. Uh, that is human nature. You can't stop that any more than you can stop Adam Smith's two merchants getting together. So you must build a government that makes it as difficult as possible for factions to be able to gain control of power. You always want to have counterbalancing weights. So this this cliche that everybody hears in high school civics class, or at least they used to, checks and balances, is at the very core of what the founders were struggling with during the Constitutional Convention. Uh, I I guess that one of the uh, best things that the person who asked that question could do is read a a book called Miracle in Philadelphia. And there are other books that have described uh, the Constitutional Convention. And they look, if you read the Federalist Papers, you, you can learn it too. Federalist Papers are kind of a hard read. Uh, and and there are books out there describing what went on during the Constitutional Convention, which you will walk away from understanding what the principles are, and you will understand how damn difficult it was to do it. We take for granted that they succeeded in creating this constitutional system. There have been lots of constitutions written since. None of them has had the longevity and the the effectiveness of the of the American Constitution. So go yeah, back. To, go back to the origins. Yeah, I, I, all I would add to that is two things. One, it's also I mean, getting to our point about how there's there's a cultural aspect to this too. There's an American folk traditional libertarian small L freedom loving tradition in this country that is prior to the Constitution. And uh, in the 19th century, a whole bunch of Latin American countries tried to come up with constitutions a lot like ours, and they didn't work. The culture was a mismatch. And you have to keep that in mind. The other point I would make is one way to think about this is um, turn the pyramid upside down. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty thoroughgoing libertarian-ish kind of guy, but I really have no problem with some local community banning booze, banning loud music. I mean, you can't, you can't have slavery. You can't do that stuff that we fought a civil war. Uh, we amended the constitution. Those, those amendments apply all the way down. But the idea that a bureaucrat in DC should be able to tell residents in Oregon that they can't have stinky cheese from France um, is insane to me. And so the way to think about it is Everyone should be their most libertarian at the federal level. What the federal government should be doing is they should be fighting wars, having a currency, uh, you know, the post office is in the Constitution, so we can have that, and a half dozen other things that we all agree the federal government really has to handle. And then as you go down the, the slide, the closer you get to home, the more people can decide how to use their local government in owner in, in what will seem like onerous ways to people. Right. That um, because then there's this opportunity to fix it if it goes wrong. 
Then there's this opportunity to fire people who screw stuff up. Um, <coughs> and there's also, you know, federalism is the best way, and I often do this math for college kids, is the single best system ever conceived of, conceived of for maximizing human happiness. Because just as a matter of math, it lets the most people live the way they want to live. And so the Madisonian structure thinks about it in those terms where you can be totally like socially conservative, communitarian, or crazy sort of San Francisco, let your freak flag fly at the local level. You just have no right to impose those values on some other community 3,000 miles away. And instead, what we've, we've inverted things where we think the local government should have the least power, which is insane to me, and the federal government should have the most power, which is just guaranteed as a matter of math to piss off the maximum number of people. That's my boy. <laughs> Jonah, you said it beautifully. There, there's only one thing I would add. You're libertarian when it comes to the federal government, and we're all socialists when it comes to our families. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, so that was the conversation with Charles. Uh, I have not listened to this since I was participated in a while, so I hope it was pretty good. At the time, I recall it being pretty good. Um, let us know what you think. And uh, again, uh, Check out the dispatch, please, if you can, subscribe in the new year. It'd be great for us. I think it'd be great for you and great for the country. And um, I look forward to uh, uh, talking to you guys from uh, my home, which I'll be doing in the uh, hours ahead. So thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.